The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to cover a lot of verses. Uh, Instead of, you know, slowing down, I'm actually speeding up a little bit, verses 21 through 48, because... You know, Jesus delivered the whole Sermon on the Mount at one time. So uh, there is a, a message behind all of these things that we're going to talk about. I think I've got uh, half a dozen different life lessons. But this is about the heart. Jesus is revealing the heart of the kingdom of God. God has a government, and it's called the kingdom. And he is the king. And he is now bringing... Uh, He's going to take the law, and and in these verses, six of the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is going to give a brand new, fresh uh, interpretation of what they really mean, what they were originally intended for, because the religious community had left them as, as long as you don't do all this stuff out here, then you're okay in your inner world. Jesus is going to say, oh, no. Starting with your actions out here is just the beginning. The whole purpose of God giving us these divine boundaries is so that He can reach and touch our hearts. So the first life lesson that we have uh, to look at this morning from uh, verses 21 and 22 is this. Both love and murder begin in the heart. Wow, this is a wild way to begin. So we begin with verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. He's talking about the day of judgment uh, and then hell, basically being separated from God because of that uh, judgment that would come. But then in verse 22, he says, but I say to you, So now we're going to get to the heart, an eternal truth. He says, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, raka, which means you fool or empty head or blockhead or knucklehead or other forms of head that have nothing in them, raka, (laughs) shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire, eternal damnation and separation from God. Okay, everybody look up here for a second. How many of you have brothers and sisters? Raise your hand. How many of you? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you ever got mad at your brother and sister? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you ever called them something bad? (laughs) Great, you're all going to hell. No. (laughs) So, what in the world is Jesus saying? Now, listen to this. Jesus is not saying that anger leads to murder. Rather, he is saying this kind of anger is murder. Now, look, there's a holy anger that can be against sin. Um, But Jesus is talking about an unholy anger that is against people. The word that Jesus uses here for this kind of anger is a settled anger, a malice that is nursed inwardly. You just, it's like simmering 
burning. Uh, you know, it's on, the pilot light is on, it's burning, it's boiling, it continues. And it, he, he describes it passes through different stages. It starts with you get offended. Well, hello, we all live in broken families, broken homes. We've all sinned. We're all going to get offended starting when we're little boys and girls. Nobody has perfect parents and they, nobody has perfect siblings. So you get offended. Then you have a bitterness. You nurse the bitterness until finally you find yourself worthy of judging them, condemning them. Hey, by the way, when you begin to judge others, you just took the seat of God in another person's life. And then once you have judged them, uh, you demean them and you feel justified in harboring hatred. And that hatred explodes with words and you verbally lacerate them, calling them a fool, an empty head or whatever it may be. And Jesus says, you're in danger of hell. That's pretty serious. Now, verse 23, he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, so you're harboring this anger that's like murder in your heart, and then you're coming to, you know, you want to come worship God, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So you want to come and go, hallelujah, Lord, I love you so much. I could kill my brother, but anyway. (laughs) He says, leave your gift there. Don't come worship God with your hallelujahs. Uh, Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. These are analogies that happen in the real world when you owe a debt that you cannot pay. You get thrown in debtor's prison. He's talking about if you owe a debt of forgiveness to a child of God, you'll be thrown into a prison of bitterness. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So what are we to do? We've all become angry. We've all, you know, allowed and nursed various anger and so forth. Um, since we're not to hate our brother, in fact, the commandment of God, and it's not a suggestion, it's not like these are good tips and principles of living a spiritual life, these are commands. God commands you as he made you and created you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, including your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker, as you love yourself. How do you love someone who has deeply offended you. There's only one way. We must forgive them. And Jesus will go on in the Gospel of Matthew to put it this way. He, now, he says, if you want your sins forgiven, I will make provision for all of your sins. Everything that you have done wrong will be entirely, completely washed, cleansed, by the way, paid for with great price, his life, flesh, and, and blood, and death, and burial, and resurrection. But in light of that, uh, you will receive forgiveness, and therefore I will require of you, you must forgive everybody else who has offended you. And by the way, if you don't forgive those who have offended you, then I will not forgive you of anything that you have done. So there's, there's no debate, there's no option, there's no grading on a curve. We have to forgive. And look, um, I think, you know, stating this in church is kind of maybe obvious uh, that we, we realize this, but the reality is that yet within the church, and by the way, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was directed to followers, 
believers and disciples. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I realize that the vast majority of you here have not, you know, taken a knife and stabbed a person and, you know, taken their life, but on the inside you have, in the eyes of God, done the same because of your lack of forgiveness and a root of bitterness. So I want you to read with me a scripture I put into your notes, a cross-reference that puts this in perspective. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Let's read this out loud. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. In that word defiled, everything that belongs in hell, you are thrown in hell. Why? Because you have fallen short of God's grace. How do we fall short of God's grace? By a root of bitterness. If you have a pen or a pencil, circle the word bitterness there in your notes. It's something that, that, that God works in our hearts to remove. It's something the devil seeks to plant when we are small and little children. And even when we become believers and come sit in the pews and we're worshiping, hallelujah, bringing our gifts to the Lord, but harboring this bitterness. And Jesus is saying, I mean, this is as severe as it gets. He goes, no, you, you cannot come into the gates of heaven harboring that kind of murderous spirit within your heart. And part of the problem is that, uh, look, the devil is a strategist. Um, he has seen humanity from the beginning, and he knows our vulnerabilities, and, and he, like a military strategist, he knows that with human beings, if I can wound them deeply when they are a little boy or when they are a little girl, some great evil, some great injustice, some great offense, and I will plant it deep within them. And then they, you know, whether they become a believer or not, go to church or not, whatever, even if they do, I keep heart, you know, they keep nursing that bitterness inside of them. And they, they grow in that anger and in that frustration. And it, it literally becomes a prison to your own spiritual growth and your own spiritual maturity and development. God wants us to go from being little babies. Yeah, great. You're born again, but don't stay a baby. Grow into the full measure of maturity and adulthood and being like Jesus Christ, who there from the cross, while he's being crucified, is saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we don't come to that place and that level of maturity, we will be in a prison. That bitterness will imprison you. And here's what that bitterness will do. You will be, uh, without realizing it, reading your Bible, having studies, and yet be angry at God. Or you will be angry with people within your family or angry at the unjust treatment you receive at your place of work or a relationship or even within a family or a sibling or parents or whatever and you hold on to it and you nurse it and you're angry with them and it just goes on and on and on and never gets dealt with. So the devil wants, look, here's his strategy. It's, it's pretty straightforward and simple. Get them angry and blame God. You're God, you're big, you could have protected me, you didn't, you weren't there, and it happened, and you kind of see it against God. And then you're angry at the person who did it. And then if you got mixed up into the middle of it, because the devil tempts us with our weaknesses, and then we do things we wish we hadn't done, we have regrets, we make mistakes, we blow it too. Then he says, then the devil says, you should be angry at yourself. And you almost self-immolate. The devil doesn't care 
if you're angry at God, or if you're angry at someone else, or if it can get you angry at yourself, blame God, blame others, and blame yourself, he's got you wrapped up in a prison. And let me tell you, the only way you get delivered out of it is the key to getting out of the debtor's prison is called forgiveness. Forgiveness is not initially a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice that you make to be obedient to God. Again, how many of you want to be forgiven of 100% of everything you've ever done wrong? Then you have to forgive other people of what they have done. What a trick of the enemy to get us angry at God, angry at others, angry at ourselves. And guess what? In that little scenario, that's called deception. It's a, he's a liar. Jesus has said he is the father of all lies. Because in that scenario, when you find people that are angry at God, and the world's full of people angry at God, and they're angry at other people, and we see what's happening in the world because of that, or they're angry at themselves, self-immolation, wow, the devil's got it made. Because the one person who has not been blamed is actually the culprit of the whole deal. The person to be angry at, and the one who sponsored all of the wounds, and the lies, and the hurt, and the pain, is the devil himself. He deserves the anger. And look, the Bible, if you were ever raised in a church where, and some people have, without it being said, uh, you know, with words, but it's kind of in the tone, the idea is that if you're a Christian, there's no anger. There, There should be no anger. That's not part of the spirit of the nature of God. I'm here to tell you that that's not true. The Bible tells us, both the Old, all the way to the New Testament, God gets angry. How many of you know that God gets angry? Jesus gets angry. Jesus got angry. And when he went to the temple and he's throwing tables upside down, guess what? You're a child of God. You cannot help but be angry. Anger is, can be a healthy emotion if it's directed to who belongs the anger. And the anger that should be directed by the children of God is against the enemy of our soul, which is the devil. He should get the blame. He should get all the anger and the wrath against him is I'm going to walk in the spirit and walk as close to Jesus Christ and be obedient to him and forgive others and not get in debtor's prison no matter what it takes. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Done. So, God the Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. If it's not good and it's not perfect, it's not from God. So, don't fall into that trap. Now, let's go on to the next one. He says, um, the sanctity of marriage and true intimacy. Is it? Okay, it's coming up there. Um, Let's go to, where was I? Verse 27, the sanctity of marriage. He says, you have heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, so all the people that say, yeah, I never have done anything immoral physically. Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the same for, uh, you know, if a man looks to a woman, a woman looks to a man. It's all the same. So here's what Jesus tells us to do if that is a problem for you. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So if your eye lusts and sins, well, then that eye can't go to heaven. So take that eye out, leave it here, because you still want to go to heaven, but the eye can't go to heaven. Okay, that's good. Now verse 30. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So now, if you've ever sinned with your right hand or left hand, you've got to cut that off, leave it here so you can go to heaven. So let me just say, if we followed that, we would all be blobs here, little lumps of flesh with nothing, no limbs. So is Jesus literally saying that? And by the way, there are people in history who have taken that literally. So, okay, listen, I, I want to share with you something. How many of you are aware that Jesus is Jewish? Are you aware of that? So God revealed to this guy, he started with a guy named Abraham, here's the whole plan, here's the whole deal, I'm starting with you, Abraham, you're going to have a son, Isaac, and then he's going to have a son, Jacob, and there's going to be 12 sons, and they're going to be tribes, they're going to be a nation, and then I'm going to send my law through this guy, Moses, and there's going to be a kingdom, and David, and prophecies, and the Messiah, and all of that. The whole Bible is written within a language called Hebrew, it's written within a culture that is Jewish. The wallpaper of the kingdom of heaven has this whole Hebrew Jewish thing going on. And what Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago, you can't translate it into modern English with our culture in the same way. This is what we would call uh, hyperbole. And by using the word hyperbole, what I mean is Jesus is trying to use language to paint a picture in your mind of how serious it is that if you sin with your eye or with your hand, you had better put your finger in and gouge it out. What a gross thing to think about, or literally physically cutting off your hand. He is not asking you to literally, you know, pull your eye out or literally cut off your hand, but he is painting a visual image in your mind of the severity and the seriousness of what he's talking about. Does that make sense? He's not messing around. The hell part is real. Uh, the judgment part is real if we allow and we harbor these things in our lives. So, sanctity of marriage. What he is saying is that true intimacy is not merely not doing certain things on the outside. It's a matter of our thought life. It's a matter of our hearts. Jesus here is affirming that God the Father, the Creator, designed you as a human being. So now I am speaking not from the attitude of the world. I am speaking to you from the authority of the Word of God and the Creator, saying that you and I were designed to experience human intimacy between one man and one woman who become one in spirit, flesh, and body. The two become one and they experience intimacy for one lifetime. That's what God designed. And by the way, there's a reason, a bigger, higher reason for that. And that's the only kind of intimacy that is rewarding, that is fulfilling, that there's no guilt, there's no condemnation. And in fact, you were designed uh, in your DNA. Every cell in your body was designed to experience a, a holiness. It's like the husband and the wife, and you draw a circle around them. No one and nothing else comes into the midst of that. Now, inside of that, the marriage bed is undefiled. You can express and love and get to know in, in loving and hugging and touching and caressing and giving pleasure to one another. There, there's no limit to experiencing that on the inside. But that marriage intimacy between a man and a woman and that commitment for one lifetime was to be a lifelong sermon mirror of the kind of personal one-on-one -on -one intimacy that we are to have with God. 
It is to be a mirror where God says, look, I'm in your center of your being, in your spirit, where just my spirit and your spirit are one. Nobody, no other boyfriend, girlfriend, no other love, no other idol, no other false lover, because that's the whole story of the Old Testament. He goes, you keep bringing in these other boyfriends and these other guys into your life, Israel, and you're playing the harlot, and you're breaking my heart, and these guys use you over and over and over again, and they take advantage of you, and they don't love you and care about you, let alone you've broken our intimacy. So that's why God uses marriage to prepare us for eternity that is him and with us in intimacy where there's no limitations to the joy and the intimacy and the closeness. And he's, he's like, I want to reveal to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you so that every cell of your being is not only blessed, but goes to a level of ecstasy and bliss like you cannot even believe or imagine. But this is the way to go there. And it's the only way. Does that make sense? So that's what Jesus is saying. And it's sacred, it's holy, it is to be protected. And uh, we are not to allow anything else to, to come into the midst of that holy of holies. Guard the holy of holies of your heart. And there will be total fulfillment and a river overflowing with great love and joy. Okay, well, let's go on to the next one. Um, and I've got to go into verses 31 and 32 real quick. It says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, lest, uh, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, I'm not going to go into uh, great detail here because Jesus will bring it up again in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. But he's talking about the sacredness of marriage and he's reacting to the interpretation on that day. They would come to the rabbi and say, well, not, you know, has she been unfaithful? Well, no, not exactly, but, well, what has she done that's bothered you? I, literally, it got to the point where if you didn't like the way she made breakfast, all you had to do was to write that down, he would stamp it, and you could get a divorce. How, how is that for control? And, you know, how many women go, man, y'all burn your toast right away then. If that's the way you're going to treat me, I mean, hello. So, so he is saying, look, no, not only is intimacy sacred, but the covenant of marriage is to be honored and respected. And, you know, we live in a day and an age where easy things come and go and you're, you know, back and forth. And, and so he's getting to the root of it. He's getting to the heart of it. He's getting to the original intention of it, that it's serious. And it all, every vow, every promise, every commitment of a man and a woman to one another is sacred and, and should be kept uh, holy. So then in verses 33 to 37, he goes on, and here's where uh, he is saying, be extremely careful as my children on earth before you get to heaven for rewards, etc. Be very, very careful, extremely careful with your words. Again, you have heard it that was said, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one, is from the devil." Jesus is teaching us that in our conversation, 
it should be so honest and our character with such integrity that we should not need verbal crutches to get people to believe us. Now we, we live in a society where you say something and people don't even necessarily think you have to keep your word. So then to try to bind you, they make a contract and then they make you sign it. But now, because of litigation, you could actually have a contract and have it signed and then say, but I'm going to renege on that because, and then I'm going to sue you, and then it just goes on and on and on. That's the society that we live in today. It's interesting that it was not always so within our own country. Think about your grandparents, maybe your great-grandparents. There was a time back when, where when a, when a man, there were certain within the culture when a man gave his word, have you ever heard this expression, my word is my bond? And by that, what they were saying is, if I tell you that I'm going to do something, my name, my family, my reputation, I mean it. I'm, I don't need to sign anything. I don't need to do anything. My word you hear me say it, it's done. Even if the future things change and it ends up it could be to my hurt, my reputation means more to me than whatever deal this is about because I'm going to live a long time and decades and I want to pass on what God blesses me with with my children. So if I give my word, it's done. And there were those who could say, if that guy said he was going to do it, I know him. He's going to do it. That's the way it is. That's the way it is in heaven. You don't have to, I swear, I'm going to do this, and then you do, and then you renege on it, and you blow it up, and then you're in court, and you're suing, and money, and years, and nothing ever, and nobody trusts anybody to do anything. Jesus said, I'm talking to my family now. I know that the world is like that. I know that you can't trust anybody to say anything or make any kind of a commitment, but you're my sons and daughters. When you say something, mean it. When you give, so therefore, don't easily say yes unless and until you mean yes. And if you mean no, just let it be known. Be a person of your word. It's interesting that, uh, because Jesus said one day we're going to have to give an account for all of our words. Do you know what the book of Proverbs is? a great thing to go through for your devotions, the book of Proverbs. It has a lot to say about talking. And if I could summarize what the book of Proverbs says about us talking, the book of Proverbs basically says to us, we talk too much. We give our opinion about everything. We make judgments all the time. We give our attitudes. We give our opinions. We give, and we just blah, 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 blah. We give it all out there. And the Bible says, basically Proverbs says, if you talk all the time like that, you're a fool. You're foolish. In fact, it tells you, nobody wants to be called a fool, thought of as a fool, or a foolish man, or a foolish woman, or a foolish person, or let alone a foolish business. Nobody wants that kind of reputation. So basically, uh, Proverbs says this, if you will just shut your mouth and not say anything and be quiet, eventually people think, man, that guy's wise. <laughs> How do you know? I don't know. He doesn't say anything, but he just goes, hmm. <laughs> hmm. That's what the proverb says. A man of very few words who listens and takes counsel, and is humble, and is teachable, and then, you know, with few words, they will think you are wise. So, I, I think Jesus is saying, stop talking so much, because look, Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, 
We're going to have to give an account for every word. Let's read this out loud together. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's so funny now, we keep reading of scandal after scandal. It's like, does nobody realize that, you know, your phone is with you wherever you go? It's got GPS. They can listen to your conversations, every little text that you write. And it's like, they, they know everything. Well, how much more does God see everything, hear everything, know everything, even in the innermost thoughts? So, every idle word, one day we may have to give an account. We better just stop talking so much and think about the words that we're going to share. All right, let's go on to the next life lesson real quick. Verses 38 through 42. In verse 38, he says, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The idea was, you know, again, people that don't know, they go, oh, he knocked my tooth out. So I go before the judge according to the law and I get to take a pair of pliers and pull his tooth out. That's not exactly what it means or how it was applied biblically. The idea was what the tooth was worth uh, is now to be compensated financially. That's the idea and the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was a financial equality compensation. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you in the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Jesus is here trying to explain to children of faith how to be a light and an example of the kingdom of heaven among a sinful world. Roman soldiers could say, they could demand by law, you carry my pack for a mile. And by law, they could call anybody you know, a Jewish guy, you, you carry my heavy load. And he had to, by law, for a mile. And Jesus is going, so uh, you're complaining about that. Well, carry it too. Why? Because you want to witness to that soldier, to that centurion, and toward others. Now, I want to say this. What Jesus is not saying, he, he is not intending to turn his disciples then or his disciples of modern times into doormats for mistreatment by the bullies of this world. I want to say that one more time. Jesus' words here, sometimes people go, okay, so I just got to go and just let them run over me back and forth. It's not intended that we are to be a doormat for the mistreatment of bullies in the world. What Jesus is saying, though, is that when we are wronged, we do not necessarily, as a believer, have to demand revenge. The reality is Jesus himself did not turn the other cheek. As the high priest questioned him, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 23, Jesus questioned the injustice of what was being done. That was not turning the other cheek. Later, Saul, the apostle, he did the same thing when he was uh, unjustly uh, smacked. So God's character demands righteousness and justice. But what Jesus is saying is, look, yes, you may have the right to demand uh, something, but if you're in the world and you're wanting to win the lost, you are, you are not compelled to always get your rights, but you are free as my sons and daughters that in certain situations, as the Spirit may lead you, you are free to choose, Lord, maybe I won't demand my rights in this situation. 
What would be the most redemptive thing I could do in this situation that might win this person's heart to the Lord? It could be a family member, let alone another business guy or whatever else. So the idea is you don't have to always have and demand your rights. Sometimes, as led by the Spirit, you can yield them. Uh, You can allow yourself some measure of injustice because by going the extra mile, you may open someone's heart to the love of God, and all of a sudden, the gospel of Jesus Christ shines through. Can I hear an amen on that? So that's what he is saying. We have to be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, day-to-day, situation-to-situation. So then, finally, uh, we come to the last one, and we'll close with this. A kingdom heart loves even our enemies. So beginning in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor, but you get to hate your enemy. (laughs) But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. See, his focus in the Sermon on the Mount is reflecting the character of our dad as being children of God from heaven, a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly character. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God didn't just rain on, oh, he's going to church, he's a good Christian, I'll rain on his field, but I won't rain on the guy that doesn't love me's field. No, God is gracious. He says, I want you to be like your father. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only what you do uh, uh, more than others, do not even the tax collectors do this? I mean, the gang will take care of their own. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let me say the word perfect there does not mean sinless perfection. What, what that word means in the original language is complete, mature. Be grown up. Have the full character of your identity in Christ, rising to the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. We're to act like him, follow him, be like him, follow his lead, let him live in us and through us by his strength and power. And that requires even loving our enemies. Who is my enemy? He insults me. He hates me. He is against me. All of these things. So remember, why we should do this is because God, when did God love you? Did God love you when you finally cried and repented and you got saved and you joined the church and you started finally obeying God and surrendering your life and will and serving the Lord? That's not when he began loving you. He actually began loving you and me when we were arrogant and selfish and prideful and walking in the flesh, and we were his enemy. So read with me Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Let's read this out loud. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words... When we were his enemies, Jesus displayed the greatest love by dying for us. Now that we're his kids, how much more is he going to love and bless us now that we're on the resurrection side? So also we should live in the world. Because we are, look, we're not about building a little kingdom on the earth. This world, uh, fortunately, is not your ultimate home and destiny. We have a kingdom that we're going to be part of. 
and we're planting the seeds for that coming kingdom and for that coming harvest. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.